Welcome to Top Picks, a breakout investor podcast. In this episode, we are talking to Ashley Day, breakout investor's leading member in the semiconductor space. Today, we will learn which names are Ashley's top picks. Joining me to provide commentary and questions is another breakout investor, Brad Steveson. But first, a disclaimer. No one on this call is an investment advisor and no one is providing investment advice. This podcast is for information purposes only. Before investing in any company stock, you must do your own research. Supporting materials for today's discussion will be posted on the Breakout Investors Discussion app, which is located at app.breakoutinvestors.com. The application and much of the research content is free. After registering and logging in, use the search bar at the top right of any page, type in the ticker, and the results will give you a link to the research post with this podcast and to other discussion and research relating to today's companies. Now over to our featured guest, Ashley Day. Uh, could you please tell us which of your top picks we will begin discussing to get this podcast started today? Well, let's uh, go ahead and talk about uh, air test si- systems, ticker AEHR. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, shorter 10-minute podcasts uh, introducing the company, and um, uh, they have a lot going on. Um, yeah, since well, Mark Gomes, Mark Gomes just did a, um, a feature on them. He was uh, banging the table. Stock's gone from two to around 14. Uh, This has to do with some major contract wins uh, in the semiconductor testing space. So why don't you give us a real quick summary of what AIR does, why they're getting business, and uh, what we see in their near-term future. So AIR test uh, sells uh, testing equipment to the semiconductor industry. Uh, Their product, their flagship product, is is unique in that it tests uh, singulated dye and wafers uh, early on in the process of, of um, building the conduct, uh, semiconductors and, and then putting them together into modules, they do what's called wafer level test and burn-in, where the wafers are tested uh, where basically in one uh, touchdown. And their unique capability is they can do it in volume, where they could do up to 18 wafers at a time. With, uh, and that has a couple of advantages over their competitors um, as their, you know, the wafer level burning can be done uh, using probers, but you need a lot more equipment. And so a competitor's equipment not only would cost about five times more uh, for the same amount, same capacity, it would also take up uh, that much or more space in the fab, which is uh, also a nice cost savings for uh, Air's customers. All right, let me see if we've got this now. You're talking about a wafer. Now, um, microchips are made out of silicon, and they're grown uh, into uh, they're, they're, they're tubes. And when you, uh, so you 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 grow it, uh, it, it the, the crystals grow, uh, develop uh, this this tuber ingot, then that is sliced into a plate. Uh, and what you're saying is, whatever the current size is, whether it's eight inches, twelve inches, sixteen inches. They can fit 18 of these things and test them uh, in, in one pass. Did I get that right? That's right. Yeah, they can they can test multiple sizes up to 300 millimeters. Okay. Uh, and um, uh, I think what we need to touch on before we get into recent events is why uh, this is a big deal. Obviously, silicon has been around for a long time. A lot of microprocessors, a lot of testing has been done in the past. What's, what's new with AIR? Yeah, and AIR's uh, flagship product, the Fox XP, has been around for at least seven years. 
but what's what's really changed is the amount of testing that is needed, particularly as new materials are being used uh, to, for semiconductors. A silicon carbide has become uh, a necessity for electric vehicles and the components that go in them, specifically the inverters um, and chargers. Uh, and that extends to solar and wind power as well, but predominantly they're being used for electric vehicles at the moment. And what silicon carbide doesn't have the same history as silicon is relatively new. And so it, the manufacturing processes are, are still kind of producing defects uh, at a higher rate than, than traditional silicon. And so in order to weed out the uh, defective wafers, they need to test 100% of the, the wafers that are going out to their customers, uh, or they need to test it after the, the uh, modules have been put together, where they're putting a number of uh, different chips into the module. And then if they test it later on and it fails, they, they have to throw out the whole module Whereas if they use AIRS equipment, they're able to uh, test it at wafer level and weed out any defects before putting it into the module, which has a big uh, yield savings. So the, the ingots are grown, the wafers are sliced, AIR provides the equipment to test the wafer. And so every wafer of silicon carbide, a new formulation, is going through these machines. And the silicon carbide is being demanded by the EV or the electric vehicle manufacturers because silicon carbide has advantages in that application. That's right. And so as, as the technology becomes more advanced and different materials are being used, there's opportunities and the demand for their products grows. So silicon carbide is just uh, the first of, of many different materials and complexity of semiconductors you know, using multiple materials uh, that are kind of coming to the forefront and that give them a large and long runway ahead of them. All right. So earlier this summer, uh, when we started talking about air, I know you posted something on the website. We've got a couple of uh, podcasts. Um, they were doing sample uh, lots, uh, but now they've, uh, they've started entering into 10 million and larger contracts. They've booked a lot of business. Um, they've, they've got a pretty good capacity. So what do you see in the near term here? Are we going to continue to see this order flow? I think they're going to continue seeing order flow as, as the industry ramps up and as their, as their lead customer ramps up in the, the semi-space and builds out their fab to produce their components in high volume, uh, both for their, their lead customer, which is Tesla, as well as capturing more of the EV markets as the other manufacturers start to really ramp up their electric vehicle production. Okay, so uh, the reason AIR is getting uh, a lot of business is because Tesla has shifted over to silicon carbide. Now, it's my understanding Tesla is leading the way, and as you point out, as all of the other car manufacturers come in, uh, their suppliers are probably going to be asked for silicon carbide. So we could see a tremendous volume of deal uh, business come to air, at least in the short term, while every silicon carbide wafer needs to be tested. That's right. And silicon carbide has a big advantage over traditional silicon in that it can handle higher temperatures and, and voltages. And what, they've, what Tesla found is that they could get, uh, 
significantly more miles out of each battery in terms of range by switching and using silicon carbide. So that's the, the big reason that, that both them and the other EV manufacturers are moving to make silicon carbide the, the sort of the standard material for these uh, various inverters and, and chargers and whatnot. And as a result, their suppliers, and there's five kind of big silicon carbide players in the space, uh, STM, Infineon, ROM, and on Semi are kind of the, the big ones. They're all uh, locking up supply. So on Semi this summer uh, announced an acquisition of GTAT for over $400 million to secure silicon carbide supply. STM has a, a contract that they've recently extended and, and increased with a Cree for several hundred million dollars. And Infineon has also uh, secured silicon carbide supply. So these are all customers that AIR is likely talking to as they've claimed they've been talking to and working with three of the top uh, four si silicon carbide um, customers. And at least in the spring, they'd forecast uh, landing a new silicon carbide customer over the next year, which would mean sort of somewhere between now and say February, March of 2022. The folks that currently aren't using uh, air equipment, what, what are they doing to test their wafers? They would have to be going the route of using multiple probers and probe cards, which is both more expensive and uses a lot more uh, floor space, or they are testing the module after it's been packaged and the die sort of installed. And if that fails, they're then chucking the entire module, which may have six to eight, 10 chips in it. So it's your, it's your understanding there is no comparable company offering a technology that competes head to head with air. Certainly nowhere near their price point. Okay. And then there was an article, uh, it's up on uh, the a breakout investor platform, I think it was a Bloomberg article, talks about another uh, type of silicon, which, which has advantages in charging. Can you speak to that and whether or not AIR is going to maintain their competitive advantages with respect to that technology? Uh, one of the other uh, materials that's making, uh, making headway in EVs and, and even in just charging your phone and various other uh, electronics uh, is gallium nitride. And uh, Gain, the CEO of AirTest, has uh, on past calls uh, stated that Air is able to test gallium nitride. So even if there's a, a shift and that becomes uh, the, the go-to material for inverters and other uh, types of uh, components, they'll be able to test those as well. So you, you see this this competitive advantage this unique positioning extending as these two technologies roll out, at least until the manufacturing process has been so well tested and developed that um, there, there's a very low error rate amongst the wafers. That's right. And, and there's, going to be some, there's going to be some time before this technology matures uh, and uh, GAN uh, starts to play a role as well. So they've I got a nice runway until I then. Think you, 
you and I did a 10 minute podcast on this one recently and uh, the stock had moved significantly and you thought that there was still quite a ways to go. How are you feeling about uh, the, the current price and its, its near term prospects, particularly given a, uh, well, it wasn't a surprise, but it was a pretty dramatic day. Um, there were five or six insiders that did some very heavy selling of the stock on September 30th, probably the last day possible under their uh, insider trading policy. And they just came in waves after the market closed, many, many millions of dollars. Uh, what, what, what was your take on that? Do you think it will have a, an impact on the stock? And then beyond that, do you think that the stock has a strong future? I think it's uh, definitely given it a, a nice pullback here. And, uh, you know, knowing, having spoken with these, uh, you know, the executives there, they're certainly bullish on the future. Um, I also don't believe it's a very substantial port. Uh, it is a I believe it is a very substantial piece of their net worth. And so they took some off the table to diversify. Um, you know, it's been a long time coming. It's been the 20 plus years since the stock has been any anywhere close to this price. Um, so I think it's it's fair to for them to take some off the table. And I don't read that as a negative or a, a cause for concern. You know, myself personally and thinking about it, I, I, I'm probably a little bit more critical than you are. Um, you know, they, they made a decision and, and they, they decided to uh, damn the torpedoes and they went ahead and sold and put millions uh, in their pockets. And I would expect all of these folks probably haven't been around for 20 years, a couple of them maybe, but, uh, but it's unlikely the whole team waited 20 years for a payday. In any case, I think that uh, AIR is now uh, out of the micro cap status. It's a, it's, it's a small cap with about a $300 million market cap. I think it's on the, uh, the radars of institutions. I think institutions are going to start buying it. I think they're going to plow right through the sales of that. And then I also think uh, AIR is very likely to be included in the uh, Russell 2000 index next year. So uh, for different reasons, I don't think that the insider sell is going to be that significant. Um, do you have any final comments on that? Or Brad, do you have any questions you'd like to ask before we move on to the second day? Yeah, so I I uh, did uh, model out what I think we're gonna we're looking at this year, and I'm coming up with around 60 million in uh, revenues for this fixed fiscal year, and around I think at least 65 cents in earnings per share. And so when I when I take that and look at it, I come up with a value of somewhere around 15 dollars a share, forecasting that forward into next year and what what we think is going to happen. And we were talking a little bit about. Um, how fast other customers will ramp up. And I feel like we need to start seeing some test orders uh, before, probably over for four to six quarters or more before we see other silicone carbide customers go into full production. Would that be a fair assessment, Ashley, do you think? Yeah, I would think, I would think so. And I, I think one of the recent overlooked uh, orders was a million dollar order for a, a sort of a early qualification uh, system by an OSAT, which is a, a semiconductor assembly and test company in China. Uh, they also have sold a system to ASE Tech, which is another uh, OSAT that is the world's largest and who is apparently marketing their product to their customers because they like the product and believe that more of their customers should be using it. So there's other opportunities there and outside of uh, silicon carbide, you know, you've got the silicon photonics market is uh, starting to go mainstream. And you know, sometime in the next few years, 
they may be able to take a piece of the memory market, which Gain finally quantified on the last call as, um, you know, each fab would potentially need 60 to 100 testers, you know, at two and a half million dollars a pop. You know, that's well over 100 million to, you know, 250 million per fab. Granted, I don't assign a huge probability or high probability that that will happen, but it's certainly uh, sort of a nice little call option in the future. Um, one, if this stock does get fully valued on its opportunity in front of it. You know, you, uh, when you start talking about that type of volume of machines, I think you have to uh, conclude with quick discussion about the consumables that these machines use. So the, each machine uh, needs uh, the consumable wafer packs uh, that the company sells and gets, you know, has about 50% gross margins on. And every time there's a new iteration or new design of a customer's product, they need to order new wafer packs. And particularly this early in the product cycle for silicon carbide, the customers are expecting to make a good amount of tweaks and adjustments to their products as they that technology continues to mature. So we should see a nice follow-on of consumables um, certainly throughout this year and into the next few years as well, just from the orders they've already received. That could be very lucrative too, because the consumables have uh, a much higher gross margin percentage as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, fantastic. Okay, let's move on to the second idea. Uh, Ashley, what is your second top pick for today? So going along with the theme of semiconductors, uh, I'd like to bring up company called Quick Logic, which is ticker Q-U-I-K. And they have about a sort of $60, $70 million market cap, a smaller company. And they're in sort of the hardware software business where they sell FPGAs, which is a field programmable gate array, um, particularly EFPGAs, which is an embedded FPGA. Um, which is sort of a hardware silicon on chip. And they also sell licensing, uh, IP licensing for FPGA. And they have a artificial intelligence machine learning sort of software that they license out through like a SaaS software license uh, on a monthly, annual, or kind of prepaid basis as well. So who are they selling this equipment and licensing this technology to? They're largely selling it to people trying to make IoT devices and uh, various other sort of smaller components. Their sort of differentiation is they're in the low power uh, space. So for all of us on uh, voice activated technologies or other IoT devices, where the uh, power consumption is, is critical. They've got a, a couple of uh, uh, deals with phone companies. Uh, one is a Kyocera, where they use their devices in their, in their phone, where they don't want it taking up a lot of the phone's uh, battery and draining it. Do they have much of a moat in this space? They did a recent uh, switch, maybe uh, 12, 18 months ago, uh, starting to leverage open source and trimming the, the staff and right size in the company for this pivot. And they claim that their mode in this space is 
feeding into that tool chain and being a, a larger part of a larger uh, development cycle kind of um, where it's quite easy to pick up and develop products using kind of their uh, technology and, and IP. Now you've been talking about Quip for a while. Or quick for a while. Why are you enthusiastic about it? I suppose the obvious question is: uh, six months ago, Airtest was a sixty million dollar company. Now it's a three hundred million dollar company. Uh, are you seeing something like that for Quick? Is it different? Um, all in. Why are you excited about Quick? I, I think they, they're starting to inflect uh, both on a from a financial perspective, but also in terms of their sort of visibility of sort of the next say 12 months of of revenues and and how excited the management team is Uh, basically their sales cycle begins with selling out these uh, development kits uh, which they've done over the past year uh, in much higher quantities than previously and those dev kits are going out to enthusiasts but also uh, some developers at large companies where they could see sort of mass large-scale orders in the future uh, if they're able to develop a product that they need off of those kits. And that sales cycle can run, say, 18 months to two years from receipt of those uh, development kits. So we're kind of looking at a little bit of a flywheel here where those previously sent kits and the ones that they're sending out this year, they've come out with two new products that they shipped in Q1 and Q2 and will continue to do so as well as uh, partnerships with uh, large distribution companies. Uh, Mauser and DigiKey were signed recently in the last six months. And so they're getting kind of planting more and more seeds uh, that, that should um, be fruitful in the year or two to come. Uh, particularly on the May conference call for Q1, the CEO signaled that they're starting to receive uh, tens of millions of RFPs and RFQs coming from their customers. Uh, some of that revenue to be booked this year and into next year and seeing an acceleration in that demand. Well, the company announced last week that they were doing an insider raise. Some existing shareholders put money in. And I believe they also raised their guidance. So this, this jives with what you were just saying. They needed some extra working capital because business is coming their way. Am I reading that correctly? Uh, that's right. And they just allow, announced their new uh, IP product, uh, and, and a generator of IP that they're able to then uh, sell and license to companies. They landed a $2 million deal that b- they've been working on for a little while that should hit in Q3 and Q4. So their guidance that they suggested to be in the upper range of 3.8 to 3.9 million, uh, which is a year over year over 100% increase over last year, um, and then followed on by a, a likely increase above 4 million in the fourth quarter to get them to 50% year-over-year revenue growth, is certainly a signal that they're starting to see some nice traction in their space. And again, seeing the follow-on uh, strategic raise last year from two long-term shareholders uh, was a good sign that there's some confidence in uh, folks who really know the company. Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, I was excited about the raise, not so much that I thought a million dollars was a big 
a game changer for the company, but uh, it's nice to see that these insights, because one of the problems I was having is just really trying to decide, I can see what the rest of this year looks like, but, but how does that follow through into next year? And I, this, this helped me to feel a little more confident that these insiders see, uh, see more growth going into next year. And one of the other drivers, in addition to getting all these dev kits out there, is the chip shortage has pushed a lot of companies to want to own their process and design uh, chip design. And we've sort of, a lot of us have seen in the news that some of the large companies in the Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple have all been designing their own chips. And smaller companies are, are wanting to take charge and design their own as well. Um, Quick was recently added to the uh, DARPA initiative as the defense space wants to be designing their chips. And Brian Faith, the CEO of QuickLogic, believes that the defense space, as well as IoT, are a couple of the areas they're expecting to see expansion near term. Roger. Okay. Uh, Brad, Ashley, anything uh, more on this one before we go on to the third topic? Yeah, I have something else. So I see, you know, I see that one of the reasons I'm a little bit excited about this in the short term is I see a really low float stock, 11 million shares or so. Um, we confirmed on our call, actually invited me to join a call that we had with management uh, recently, that they are executing on their global foundries membership, um, which is a good thing. And then um Something that I discovered from an industry insider is that there is a this kind of this cult-like following in the open source programmable EFPGA world uh, that Quick has uh, on these uh, I, I'll call them underground message boards. I don't know that they're necessarily underground, and uh, some of their products are integrated into Alexa devices now, um, and then. Just think about the headlines for quarter three and quarter four, 100 plus percent uh, revenue growth year over year. So I just I am really excited about this one uh, over the next couple of uh, uh, quarterly reports because of those reasons. OK, well, I think we're ready to uh, move on to our third pick. Uh, Ashley, uh, I understand it's going to be away from semiconductors. Yeah, we're going to shift over into the biotech space and uh, talk about BioCrist ticker BCRX. This company has uh, been on quite a ride and it, we've seen a transformation in the company over the past uh, year and a half, which is already reflected in the stock. Uh, it's risen quite dramatically as they received approval for one of their drugs uh, in December in the US and have seen a handful of approvals in Japan and Europe in early 21. They are a rare disease drug company. So the types of diseases they're, they're finding solutions to don't tend to have a whole lot of patients. So their first drug, Orladeo, uh, treats uh, patients with HAE, but there's probably about 10,000 patients in the U.S., a few thousand in Japan, and um, say five, 10 plus thousand in Europe. The drug is sells in the U.S. for over 350,000 a patient. So the dollars are quite high uh, for the patients that they serve. One of the differentiators is that it's a, it's a prophylaxis. So the goal is to, and it's a oral once a day pill that a patient can take uh, to prevent uh, outbreaks and 
where they they tend to see a lot of swelling um, when they have one of those outbreaks. Um, these patients, once they, they have those, they have to go into the hospital and get either a transfusion or an injection, which they often tend to get on a, on a fairly regular basis. So even though Orladeo uh, sounds quite expensive, it's actually cheaper than the injections and transfusions that can run five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year. So the drug is attractive to both the patients, uh, the doctors, and certainly the healthcare companies and payers who are covering the drug. Um, so far this year, they're tracking to uh, earn about a hundred million dollars in revenue plus on their in their first year of launch, which you know. They have seen some COVID headwinds as it's been harder to meet with doctors face-to-face and especially have word of mouth uh, spread between patients and at, at various uh, where they might get a bunch of patients together and they can really talk about how the drug is working for them. And also they've found that the, the real world experience of their patients has actually been superior to what they presented in their trials. So it's, it's exciting to see that it's, it's making a big difference. Oh, I've seen you mention this one as a, uh, is, is something folks should take a note of. This is the first time we've had it on the podcast. Is it the revenue growth? Is it the pipeline? What exactly has got you interested and where did the idea come from? So it's a couple things. Uh, this was an um, idea that was pre- uh, presented by a, a fellow researcher who had been tracking the company for several years. And, um, you know, the company currently sits at a, after, you know, you know uh, the run-up it's had and a slight pullback of, of late, it's running at about a $2.5 billion market cap. Uh, their primary approved drug, Orladeo, they're expecting peak sales in excess of $500 million. And a lot of estimates have put it much closer to the billion to $1.3 billion range. The 500 comes from management, of course. And so with a market cap of two and a half billion and drug companies often sort of seeing sales multiples of five or six hundred million or five or six times peak sales, uh, there's still a good amount of space to run based on what's approved now. In fact, it's, I think it's fairly reasonable to think of it being worth about $25 just based on the Orladeo approval uh, so far. Now on that drug, just, just to clarify, uh, you may have said it, I might not have understood, but there are some drugs that will actually cure a condition, so they're a one and done. Is this a chronic situation with a long uh, tail on uh, individual patient sales? Uh, yes, it is. So these aren't, uh, this isn't a curable disease, but it's just something that you can um, make it more easy to live with. And so when the patient's given the opportunity to come in for uh, weekly or monthly injections and transfusions or to take a, a once a day pill, they tend to opt for the pill as a better way to manage their, their disease. So any thoughts on why the market is discounting the value that uh, you and uh, the original analysts see in this one? Uh, I think it's, you know, it's going to take a few years to get to peak sales. So currently on a hundred million plus runway. So I, I don't think it's going to be fully reflected uh, for a little while until that 
or until it's quite clear that they're going to exceed those numbers. But the management is certainly very excited with the progress they've made since the original launch. And the share price has certainly reflected that having been in the $4 range last December as the approval took, took hold. The exciting thing about this company though is, is that the market isn't really giving a value to perhaps their best asset. And so it's a nice sort of call option you have on their uh, second drug, which is called BCX9930. It's a factor D inhibitor. And they're excited about how many different indications they can go after as they call it a pipeline in a molecule in that they believe they've identified eight to 10 other uh, diseases that they will be able to run trials and attempt to treat. They're planning on going into a pivotal trial for the treatment of PNH uh, later in 2021, so in the next month or two, that should take about a year. And they're running kind of two trials to have it as a, a monotherapy that actually replaces the C5 inhibitors uh, if, there is, if there are patients that are currently on those, uh, and if not, to be the monotherapy for patients that aren't taking anything for it. It's not gonna be a large trial because again, it's a, a rare disease and patients are in the thousands, but they're sort of more excited about the prospects and the sort of addressable market uh, for uh, PNH, which kind of runs into the, the billions. And then the other indications that they're able to go after in this space are in the, the 10, 20, $30 billion range. So it's a, a very exciting pipeline. And I think down the road, it makes them a very attractive um, acquisition candidate for big pharma if they choose not to go it alone. Well, Ashley, I was looking at this and it seems to be a very well covered company. I think there's no less than, no fewer than 12 analysts, including the likes of JP Morgan and others. Two and a half billion dollar market cap. Um, it just seems like the story is well known. And I'm and so I, when I'm thinking about these companies, I, I, I love everything you're saying, but what I'm wondering, or the thing that comes into my mind is what advantage do we have or what is it that we're able to discover on this that's not already known? Is there anything that comes to mind on that? I would say that there really isn't other than um, just sort of following closely the likelihood of the BCX 9930 trials going well. Uh, you know, they've pretty much got some fairly easy endpoints that they need to hit next year. Uh, some of the pressure on the stock could be their sort of their cash burn versus their the cash they have on hand, they're, they're running north of $200 million with a kind of a cash run burn run rate that's sort of in the $40 million a quarter. So they expect to have money into 2023, but at some point they'll probably have to do a raise or partner off an asset uh, before that. So that's probably uh, putting a little bit of pressure on it. I sort of treat it as a, as a stock that doesn't have a whole lot of uh, downside from here. The, you know, the, Original Orladeo drug is, has been gaining uh, steam and popularity and is a, a real, has a real moat versus the other couple of drugs that are out there. 
And so I, I don't think there's a lot of downside there, but the, the upside on the BCX 9930 is, is quite potent. It looks like a great opportunity. Looks like um, an interesting approach that they're trying to really attack these rare diseases that don't have really a lot of interest from other drug companies. And even though the patient count is low, the dollars per patient is high. So it definitely is very interesting. Um, yeah, of course. And I, I could add to um, just in terms of the acquisition space, Alexion was purchased for uh, close to $40 billion for their factor D uh, program. And it's, you know, many believe that it's inferior to, uh, what BCRX has. And they're also working on uh, other uh, molecules. And, and so the, and a lot of the large, as you say, a lot of the large drug pharma companies don't have necessarily don't have a, either a focus on rare disease or they don't have a rare disease program, but it's certainly something that they can fold in and uh, look to acquire in the future. All right. Well, I think uh, I think that's a good place to stop this one. Thank you very much, Ashley, for your top picks. And thank you, Brad, for your questions. We are Breakout Investors. This podcast is meant as an easy on-ramp to understanding the research and collaboration we do. Please join us for discussion on this podcast and for other breakout ideas on our discussion platform at app.breakoutinvestors.com. The Top Picks podcast is syndicated and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, listen, and give a five-star review. Some or all the speakers may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. The views in this podcast expressed are those of the speakers, not breakout investors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Neither breakout investors nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information presented by this podcast and any liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, therefore is expressly disclaimed. No one on this podcast is an investment advisor. No one is providing investment advice. Before investing in any company's stock, you must do your own research. Thank you for listening.